thrilling episode of Adventuring Academy, the vodcast where we talk about how to run incredible games at your table for your friends. Oh boy, the guest we have today. I am so excited to welcome this amazing friend to the show. Uh, he is a producer and co-host of the Any Award-winning Asians Represent podcast. Gold winner for best podcast, y'all. Writer and cultural consultant, co-owner of Dundas West Games, which just started sending out copies for Ross Rifles, a Kickstarter-backed TTRPG set in the Canadian trenches of World War I. He is also a designer for the upcoming Candlekeep Mysteries, along with other Adventuring Academy vets like Amy Vorpal, Kelly Landangelo, and Jennifer Kretschmer, co-founder of Level Up Gaming, a Toronto-based organization that provides adults with autism and other disabilities the chance to develop their social skills through group gaming experiences. My friend and yours, please welcome Mr. Daniel Kwan! Hello. It sounds like you did that on like a single breath. You just went with words. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. You just got to get it all out. You got to keep the energy up. I, I miss awesome. I miss. I miss live shows. I miss I miss calling up the next performer from uh, from the crowd. So, Daniel, oh my God, thank you so much for being here today. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is exciting. This is exciting. I, you, you know, you mentioned live shows, and I just made me realize that I haven't been to a gaming con in like over a year now. <laughs> I miss it. I miss it, I miss so, it I miss, so much. I miss, you know, the $10 nachos that are just like tortilla chips with cheese whiz on them. Yep. I, I miss the hubbub of laminated passes clicking off of each other as people huddle around. Uh, the, like, where, when was your, what was your, like, big, what are your cons? What are the big cons that were, like, your go-tos? So I do Breakout Con. That's a local one in Toronto. That's in March. I do, um, what else to do? I do Fan Expo Canada, uh, Gen Con, uh, Big Bad Con, and I think there's one more in there that I missed and I feel really bad for missing. <laughs> but those are those are like my big ones. Those are the big ones that I, oh, and Can Games. Can Games. Yes. Uh, well, I've been hearing, like, I have sadly never attended a Gen Con. I wanted to go what? so bad. For, I know, I know. I wanted to go so bad for so long. I want to go. I want to meet all the people. I want to go out and do karaoke after everyone's done tabling or going to their booths. Yeah. And I want to get home and have whatever weird con crud and have those two days where it's like some mystery con fatigue that sets in. Um, I grew up going to comic book conventions. My mom. Me too. Uh, oh, really? That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, me too. Uh, my mom was a comic book uh, writer. Uh, uh, and so I was like, I remember San Diego Comic-Con 1998 was the first time, it was the first time playing PlayStation 1 and doing the, the Warthog level on Crash Bandicoot. And oh, it was God. the uh, first time playing Magic the Gathering. I got all a huge box of Magic the Gathering cards and that was all she wrote, folks. It was just nerdery a ho after that moment. Um, what was your what was your first con experience? See, like my experience was completely different. Like my parents are not into like nerd shit at all, not mm -hmm. into it at all until the quarantine. Actually, um, yeah, the quarantine got us to play D and D. What? Oh yeah, my we can God. talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> Write that down. Yeah, we can talk about that later. Um, but yeah, like you know, my my mom was like just super cool mom. Like she's on Twitter, she's on Instagram. She made like family hashtags. Uh, yeah, my mom's just like super into social media. Um, Yoga mom eight, if you want to follow my mom. <laughs> but like, but like fans, you know what to do. <laughs> my my mom would take my brother and I to three cons a year. 
uh, Toronto Comic Con, Anime North, and Fan Expo. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like we were like super young and my mom and dad would go and my dad would walk us around to see things and my mom would wait in line oh, for like to meet creators. Wow. And so like all these like local artists got to know my mom because she'd actually wait in line, but also bring snacks for all the artists in the artist alleys. And I had this really fond memory of my mom at a con and there was like this big commotion when we came back because we were going to meet uh, Frank Cho. Uh, really, really famous artist. And all these like nerds were like gathering around my mom being like, oh my God, oh my God. I was like, what did my mom do? What did my mom say? And my mom was like holding this piece of paper and it had a sketch on it. And my mom was like, yeah, Frank did a sketch for me. And people were freaking out because apparently at the time he was just never doing sketches or anything like that. But my mom was like, yeah, it was a I was the only Asian person. He's Asian. And we just started talking about being Asian. And he did a sketch for me. And so my mom, for his, like for my entire like tween and teen years, would always go to cons with me. Because it was just like, I liked hanging out with my mom at cons. Hell yes. yeah. Uh, uh, that, first of all, I mean, we have to shout out. What an incredible mom power move. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Rolling up to all. Because let me tell you tabling at a con you get hungry so the idea of just a mom rolling up with snacks just to be genuinely friendly is like talk uh, i mean all that's an all-timer mom move as far as i'm concerned that's incredible um well so that's that's amazing uh uh so your mom as someone who's like uh, clearly your parents were like very supportive with you guys in these nerd spaces you and your brothers um where did like the fascination first start and obviously you have like like you've successfully kickstarted your own tabletop project. You've like been, uh, uh, have the award-winning podcast. Like what was, what were your like first entrees into geek and nerd spaces? What was that first time that you were like, Oh, this is, this is going to be my thing. Like there's something here that has like earned my interest for real in a long lasting way. Oh, like super unconventional. Um, I was, uh, 11, 10, 11 years old. And my mom, like signed my brother and I up for this like summer camp at our local museum. So in Toronto, there's like the Royal Ontario museum. uh, Mm -hmm. And they actually ran like a summer camp and then like a year long sort of program about D and D. And it was literally like, go to the museum, learn about history, touch artifacts and play D and D all day. And didn't know what it was. I was like, what the fuck is D and D? I'm just, I just want to play with my Pokemon cards. Look at this Charizard I got. Um, And, I thought we were going to like, it was going to be like what I now know is a boffer larp. I thought we were going to like make weapons and I was just going to hit my brother and it was going to be great. Um, and we went and we ended up playing third edition D&D. Wow. And I remember the, the instructor, his name was Anthony Harrison. He was actually a local arts teacher uh, who worked in comics. And we did our first adventure. It was the Adventures of the Crystal Caves. And it was one that he wrote. And I actually have a copy somewhere at my parents' place. It was like... It's like 50 pages long. And he ran it for us. And I remember my first character, Aramel Galanodel. He was an elven fighter. And I just got hooked. And it was at that camp that we also, you know, I learned about Warhammer. And I painted my first minis. I got hooked on Warhammer. And, you know, I just kept going back to this camp. I became a volunteer. I ended up becoming a teaching assistant with that camp. And then I taught it. Um, for like, yeah. So I, I, so I, that camp basically is the reason why I am 
the Daniel Kwan I am today because it's there that I was like, oh, I want to work in a museum. It's there that I was like, I want to do D&D. And then I became a museum educator. At the same time, I was a researcher at the museum while I was in grad school as an archaeologist, using that to teach D&D. And then I was like, you know what? Wait, games are awesome. I want to write my own. As we started doing that. And then I was like, wait, games have a really profound impact on my students. Let's do an autism program. And it all came from that museum. Wow. Yeah. So that's kind that of how is, I got started, and it just branched out. That is incredible. It's That's so incredible. I resonate with that. So there's a, a ton of parallels that are eerily synchronous about, like, I came up at, you're talking about Boffer LARP, I came up at a Boffer LARP summer camp where, no like, the year, the year after I started playing D&D, I started attending this thing called Adventure Game Theater that eventually became the Wayfinder Experience, which is still going. Obviously, pandemic has shut down almost all programming, but um, there's only, like, virtual and digital programming left. Um, but... Uh, uh, started playing D&D, discovered improv and performance and discovered uh, LARPing and all this stuff like that. And even like you, I know that you run uh, programming for autistic adults. I we yeah. I did programming through Wayfinder with uh, uh, schools for autistic students in New York, as well as some artistic campers that we had come and uh, uh, do programming with us uh, at camp and upstate. And it's there's a, a lot of uh, parallels between uh, uh a, a lot of your journey and this and mine as well it's very very cool um i want to talk a little bit about uh, uh some of the projects that you've been up here too yeah um because uh, then there's so much stuff we can go back to before because i know i'm gonna forget because i want to jump into your kickstarter i want to jump into candle keep talk to me a little bit because we were just talking about the pandemic you started sure. a family game uh, yeah. <laughs> uh during pandemic talk to me yeah. about this how, so like how March 17th was the day that I went onto lockdown. That was the, that was the last day I went to, to work. Um, and I started working from home. Um, I couldn't see my family. I was actually like, I would only see my family in passing. Cause every two weeks, my, my girlfriend and I would actually go and get groceries. So we'd go and buy groceries for my, my mom and my dad, and then my brother, and then we would deliver groceries and then for ourselves too. So it's every two weeks, that was the only time we went out. We were like, we're gonna do our part, and we're gonna stay in and you know not do anything uh, outside. Um, and we were like, oh, we just want to connect. And I was just like, hey, mom, dad, like we haven't really done anything. I was like, I'll play D and T. And they were like, my I think it got to the point where my mom was so desperate for family interaction that she was like, sure, let's do it. Wow. And we started playing D and D every Sunday morning for like two, three hours. Um, and the first adventure they ever played was, um, I think it's called the frozen sick. It's from the wild mount book. It's the adventure that James Intracastle wrote. Yes. Um, and so we played that and, you know, I was like, I was like, here's D and D beyond here's roll 20. Oh, here's discord. So they learned all three of those things. And my mom made her character. My dad made his character. Uh, my girlfriend and my brother made their characters. And we played this like long-term adventure and their characters were just like, were so jokes. My dad, my dad was like, my dad's like, I'm gonna play a, a cleric. My name's Kavroth the Gentle. I'm a Goliath, and he's like, but I won't heal anyone, and I'm just gonna fuck shit up. Like my dad is that player who, when they're like meeting a critical NPC or something, my dad's like, I flip the table and start a brawl. That's my dad. <laughs> and my mom's a player who is like, 
okay, so we've met this person and they're cursed. Can I just make kanji for them and heal them? <laughs> and I was like, okay, sure, let's do this. And so every so my mom made this character who's like a healer and my dad, and they were just so funny. And my mom would tweet about like, oh, playing D&D with the family. Uh, we we ended up playing a fifth edition hack of Star Wars. Um, it's like there's like a it's like SW5E.com. It's like an unofficial Star Wars fifth edition hack. And we were just we just played those characters as well. And my mom's like, I'm gonna be an Asian Jedi. <laughs> and we just did that. And my dad's like, I'm gonna be Asian Han Solo. And <laughs> So we ended up just like playing RPGs together and they, it was actually like the first time in my entire life that my parents understood D&D. Wow. Yeah. And like, and I'm, I'm 31. I was born in 89. So it took until me being 30 and for a global pandemic for my parents to understand D&D. But, you know, it happened. Incredible. Well, that sounds so amazingly fun. Uh, uh, also so incredible to like be able to run a game for like multiple like generations of your family of like your parents and your siblings and like uh, that sounds so so great is there um, uh, I mean that sounds so rewarding and fun I know there are a lot of people who are probably envious of that too <laughs> oh no kidding well I've, I've had you know my parents I r ran stuff for my like forced my parents to play when I was little and I don't think I was that proficient so they were there was a lot of humoring and the good yeah. good parental like uh -huh, okay um but now I, there's been some interest to go back and do that as well but that sounds so amazing and like you're saying the idea of like having your parents play these roles and it sounds again like like the this like full engagement and it's awesome that you're I love like in you get insight into people when you play role-playing games with them oh, yeah that I think is a great way to establish that like you know, because you you become an adult, and I think you want to s know your parents uh, as an adult. Because obviously, when you're raising a little kid, they're just getting the parent facet of that person. So it's so fun to be able to play a game with your parents and see the fullness of their sense of humor. What is their wacky impulse to like flip a table and start a yep. fight? Uh, it literally has culminated in like, it culminated in us finally being able to play a game in person and me being like, I'm gonna bring all this Dwarven Forge and we're gonna do a dungeon crawl. Oh. And, and it, it was just like, it was so great because like it got us thinking about games and like we kind of stopped playing D&D because &D we were like, hey, we just discovered this like old family Mahjong set. Let's play Mahjong. And my dad is like, I'm gonna renovate the basement and we're gonna turn it into a gaming room. <laughs> I was like, what's going on here? Oh yeah. my God, that's so incredible. Um, that's, I, I love that so much. The, um, uh, and, and I want to also talk, cause we're talking about like your mom making uh, Asian Jedi, your dad making the Asian yeah. Han Solo. Um, uh, obviously even like, even you're talking about like making kanji for people, like the references specifically to culture. Talk to me a little bit about uh, your incredible award-winning podcast, Asians Represent. How did that start? Uh, also, where can uh, people who watch Adventure Academy go find it? Yeah, uh, Asians Represent. Um, it's on like iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Uh, we have a YouTube channel. Um, pretty much all socials, we're at AZNS Represent. Except for Twitch, we're at AZNS Rep. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, the, the podcast was started by uh, my, my friend Agatha and I back in like 2018. 
Uh, Agatha and I actually met at a local Toronto convention. I, I bought her shawarma because I, I was a guest at the con and I was like, I'm going to go out and I'm going to grab some like food. Does anybody want anything? Agatha was a volunteer and she was like, hey, can you get me a shawarma? And I grabbed it for her and we just kind of became friends that way. And I had been podcasting prior to that, not a gaming related podcast, but I've been podcasting and she messaged me on Facebook randomly was like, hey, Daniel, like I want to start a podcast. I want it to be about gaming. I kind of want it to be about Asian stuff. I know you have experience in this. Can you like help me develop this idea? And I was like, I'm in. Let's want to do this with me. Let, can I can I can I join you? And she was like, sure. So we went to Young and Dundas. We went to a bubble tea place and we sat down and we were like, OK, here's the here's the idea. Once a month, we're going to put out an episode. We're going to talk about Asian representation. We're going to talk about like Orientalism in D&D. We're going to talk about like cyberpunk and its weird fascination with Asia. We're going to we're going to talk about food. And then we we're like, OK, we need to put this somewhere because I don't want to do all this back end work. Let's find a network. Uh, I happened to have met James D'Amato of the One Shot Network at a con. And I was like, I, I messaged him on Facebook again. I was like, hey, James, I got this idea. Um, there's nothing like this out there. And he was like, let's do it. And so we started this podcast. It was monthly. And then we had this like huge impact and just started expanding. Um, and it didn't really, it had like a pretty loyal following, but it didn't really take off until actually quarantine. Um, yeah, it didn't take off until quarantine when we uh, were like, okay, well, we can't play in person and we've done everything in person. What are we going to do? Let's try this like live streaming thing. And so I was like, you know what's going to be fun? Let's read Oriental Adventures live. Um, and, <laughs> and I was like, that'll be fun, right? That will have like, there are no consequences to doing that. And we started me and like a cast member of our, our D&D show at the time, we were, Steve, we were like, you know, let's just start reading Oriental Adventures. And it turned into like a 40 hour series of us reading wow. cover to cover Oriental Adventures and, you know, critiquing it, evolving as creators and bringing on guests to share, uh, you know, their takes on it. Um, and it got a lot of attention. Um, it got a lot of positive attention, but it also got a lot of negative attention. Uh, people were really upset that we were, you know, calling a book that they were, you know, that they grew up with, that was their gateway to Asian culture. Uh, we were calling it problematic. We were, you know, calling out things in there that were harmful. Um, and it got a lot of people talking. And I'm really grateful for that. Um, and yeah, Asians Represent kind of took off from there. We've been streaming since and podcasting and doing all sorts of stuff. I, first of all, it's an incredible podcast. Second of all, the conversation that was started specifically, and not one of many conversations started by it, but the one specifically around Oriental Adventures, I was, I was amazed to see uh, the, you know, the reaction was overwhelmingly positive and people think like thanking you guys for bringing it to light, talking about the spotlight being put on it as an issue. And what was such a obvious takeaway for me was the idea of like, this material is still being monetized. You yeah. can't disavow a thing you're still profiting from. You know what I mean? Like, and, mm -hmm. uh, I even remember, you know, like the, the the idea of like, like I remember, of course, remember that book coming out, but also remember the the idea of like, you know, you look on the inside page, 
and see the names of the people who worked on it. And you're left wondering like, this can't be right. This is like, you know, like look at the, like the design team didn't change at all for this completely separate focus. Yep. Looking at um, uh, like going into that and, and talking about that issue uh, uh, with that book and also the game, you know, more largely in particular. Yeah. Um, with you and the people that you've worked with you know, talking about the game, I think one thing that always gets lost is that these criticisms often come, you know, some criticisms come from people who with very valid reasons are like, I don't care for this thing at all. Like the problems are, are like, I'm divesting from the hobby and from the game. But there's also a ton of voices saying, hey, we're saying this to improve the hobby. We're saying for this to get better. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, like you're saying, you've spent the past year playing a campaign with your family and these criticisms are all completely valid. Like you can hold both of these truths at the same time. Um, what are the things you would love to see from the game? And I guess like from even other games, like you're talking about like cyberpunk and other things like that yeah. moving forward, what do you see as the big tentpole things that like should be addressed moving forward? Yeah, like, I think the Oriental Adventures one is like a really complicated issue because, I mean, there are people who are like, you know, remove this completely from commercial channels or uh, there are people who are like, put them in like a demonetized archive. Um, I think for me, is I think like media erasure is really dangerous and dishonest. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I personally was like, you know what, like, I think this should still be available to people. Um, mm -hmm. Because I think you can't really do better unless you know what you need to do better then. Right. right. So like yeah. removing it entirely, I think, is super dishonest um, because there is a rich history to D&D. To &D. Um, but what I was kind of an advocate for is like, you know what, I, this should still be available. But I think we need to turn this into a learning opportunity. Like, mm. yes, this is a part of D&D's history. And yes, this is a product of its time. People didn't really have access to the Internet back then in research. Um, mm. They don't have the tools that people have now. But we also need to know why legacy products like that aren't good and why the tropes that you know successive products have built upon mm -hmm. um are problematic and harmful right i'm not trying to say like the people who used oriental adventures or read oriental adventures are bad people mm -hmm. i'm just saying that there could be so much there's so much more that's way better like i have both copies of oriental adventures it's actually like my mom bought me a copy of oriental adventures the third edition one and she was like, hey, Daniel, I found an Asian D&D thing and bought it for me. Mm -hmm. And I never played it because I was like, uh, I'm, all my characters are already Asian. Like, why do I need a book for this? Right? Right. Well, that's the thing is, you. I mean, th that was something that, occurred, like, you know, myself and my friends growing up, and we usually, like, I remember a friend of mine had Oriental Adventures, and there's, a, you know, they have, like, the samurai in there. And you look at yourself and you're like, but what if I want to make, like, couldn't the fighter like there's nothing inherently european about the idea of a yeah. fighter that class is literally any weapon any fighting style any combination it's of pretty feats. culturally and, agnostic yeah you know like yeah. why does it like now when i play this i i will feel this weird call of like play this with this very prescriptive set of abilities this very mm. pres prescriptive set of things um within that like talking about keeping that legacy media around um uh, there is this idea of like st even still the Eurocentrism of like, you know, D&D's settings um, for someone who like, and especially like 3.5 being in the rearview mirror, yeah. looking at 5e, looking at even future editions. Um, 
do you feel like the game's Eurocentrism is sort of like baked into it? Or do you think there is a version in the future where like, uh, my, like Lou Wilson has mentioned 20 cast member just played with yeah. awesome podcast, three black halflings in the Wagadu Chronicles, which is a like Afro fantasy five E compatible setting. Um, do you see like a version of that being a positive going into the future? What do you see as like the direction? Like what's, what's the shining thing over the hill, uh, for you? Look, yeah. Like I think, I think D and is already taking steps. I think that's, I think it's really important to be like, look, like D and D is, is here to stay and is a huge figure. Mm -hmm. I think there are going to be people who are like, no boycott D and D don't play D and D. I don't think that's the solution. Because if we just leave D and D, if you know people like like who look like me or have experiences like me leave D and D, D is just gonna keep doing what it's doing, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's really important for things like DMs Guild to exist, for people to actually create their own stuff. I think it's really important that there are a lot of third party products, or that D and D is now you know being more inclusive with their hiring practices. I think that's mm -hmm. like incredible. Um, moving forward, I think with classes, I think you know it. it It'll be really interesting to see what sixth edition DD looks like. We're mm -hmm. not, I don't think we're going to get it for a very long time. Yeah. Um, but I wonder what direction they're going to take because right now, fifth edition, you know, is far less crunchy than, you know, three at 3.5, way less tactical and have that video game feel of fourth edition. Mm -hmm. But it's not as um, thematically agnostic as other systems that are out there. Yeah. Uh, if, if you look at games like, Cortex Prime, you could do anything with Cortex Prime, or you look at like Cipher, right? yeah. you could do anything with those. Um, but I think what Wizards has is this really interesting. Well, they've got this cool world with a lot of content. Mm -hmm. There are some genuinely really neat things in there. Yeah, like I, I'm a I'm a D and D fan, and I will continue to play D and D for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. um, but there are things that need to change. Um, I know like certain classes like the paladin and the cleric are of course inherently eurocentric. There are classes like the monk that are, you know, supposed to be Asian but it's kind of strange. Um mm -hmm. because it kind of makes the assumption that martial artists are only Asian when cultures all around the world had their own martial arts. Mm -hmm. Um I think the fighter is the perfect example of where you could go with these archetypes like the fighter, the rogue, the barbarian. Um, are all really good examples of classes that can stay with some revision, right? And they've and they've made some big improvements on like the barbarian, right? Because mm -hmm. in third edition, the barbarian, you were like, you are illiterate, no matter what. That is a class feature, and now that's not the case, right? Or like a paladin, you had to be lawful good, and now they can be more morally nuanced. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think they're taking the right steps, and I think we have to understand that, you know. There is a well-meaning design team there that has to work within a larger corporate framework with a huge product roadmap that they have to align with. Um, so yeah. I think change in D&D is going to take a really long time. And I think the most effective change right now is, you know, shows like Dimension 20 and all the programming that you folks do, right? Setting a great example or people like Critical Role using their like incredible platform to set an example of what, you know, interaction at the table can look like. Or like for us with Asians Represent, we had our own show called, or we still have our own show called Dungeons and to Asians. And it was originally, it, we couldn't think of a better name. <laughs> we couldn't think of a better name. <laughs> and, it, and it stuck. Um, but yeah, we, we were like, let's, we want to set an example of what Asian storytelling looks like. Or, 
you know, what a story set in a fantasy China would look like, mm-hmm. what the classes would look like, what um, the interactions between players would look like, or the interactions between players and NPCs, or even the relationship with players and monsters would be like, mm-hmm. um, and set that example, right? Because I think the thing that's great about D&D is that its system, its classes, the structure of D&D can be used independent of its setting. So if you don't like the setting, you could still play D&D. Right. I mean, that I mean, with there's there is a whole strain of the dialogue around what D&D of the many things that D&D needs to do to improve. And I think it's very much one of those things where I feel very like there is a wake up call in these criticisms that I think has been long overdue because of the culture that has existed within the players of D&D for a long time. Uh, uh, and by the way, when I say the community of D&D, there's a lot of communities who play D&D. There's some For very sure. old, you know, crusty groups of D&D players. But even amongst people that I knew that played D&D, there was this weird unspoken rule of just throwing away all the setting elements. Like, but for a handful of games, me and my friends only ever played homebrew stuff. And there was this weird, I don't, rem- I don't like remember the conversation where we were like, hey, the monster manual says these guys are always evil. Are they always evil? No, they're not always evil. Yeah. That sucks. It was just, I mean, even as like 12 year olds, it was like, what, you tell me a hobgoblin can never be like good? Hobgoblin paladin sounds sick as hell. There's no ref in the room. Go fuck yourselves. You know, like, yeah, exactly. I'm going to make. Do what uh, you want. Which is, I think, something that has. In some ways, there's part of me that almost like, maybe regret is too strong of a word, but the culture of hacking the game certainly has allowed the game to go a long time without addressing these problems. Because, does yeah. that make sense? Like, yeah, and totally. I, and yeah. I think there's an element even within Dimension 20 of how much we like, you know, slap and chop and put stuff up and we're like, it's Candyland, it's this, it's that, it's that. Which like, like you're saying, the settings of the campaigns and the system of the game, fans of the game have known for so long that you pop a couple stitches and those things come apart. But it's also good to hold that setting stuff to account for uh, representing the community to its best. Uh, Dungeons and Asians is such a funny, <laughs> I love that name so much. Well, we uh, honestly, that was the hardest part. We were like, okay, you know what? I actually... So the Dungeons and the Asians thing actually came out of D&D Live mm-hmm. 2019. Cool. So the inaugural D&D Live, I got invited. Um, so I went down to actually play a game on their stream uh, with a whole bunch of really cool people from the OneShot Network. And I was there and I was looking around and I was like, I don't see a lot of people who look like me. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of really prominent like you know, Asian folk who are like doing really good things in D&D. But I was like, there isn't a show that like that's all Asian. Like mm-hmm. I want to hear like Asian stories. And I remember leaving the the convention space and talking on my phone and racking up a really big phone bill, calling one of the Asians represent people. And I was like, okay, we need to do a D and D show because there's nothing. Yeah. We need to do something. And I was like spitballing all these ideas. And when I came home, we sat down and we were like, okay, let's do this. Uh, Let's bring on this person as a cast member. We only have four mics, so it'll be like a GM and three players. Mm -hmm. What are we going to call it? And Dungeons and Asians was our best idea. (laughs) And it's not the greatest idea, but it's stuck. And it's, and you know, like Dungeons and Asians, you know exactly what you're going to get. 
And uh, yeah, we just we started with that. We were like, let's make, let's have. A, we were like, our, our original classes were literally paladin, uh, monk, and rogue. Mm-hmm. And we were like, these don't really fit with the stories we wanted to tell. Like we we created our characters. Mm-hmm. One of them was like, I want to be from what will be our fantasy India. I want to mm-hmm. be. Um, an orphan who stowed away on a ship and came to the land of Xia and grew up in Chinese culture yeah. and learned martial arts. I want to be that person. Mm-hmm. Another was like, I want to be a giant shrimp from heaven. <laughs> like that was, that's literally one of the characters. Another was like, well, I want to be, you know, an assassin, a member of this Imperial guard, but you know, I want to be striving for independence and to prove myself. Mm-hmm. And none of these narrative themes really fit with the classes yeah so while like oh the heavenly shrimp was like the paladin we we're like let's call it the sky soldier and make its own abilities and instead of a monk let's practice what we preach and call it the martial artist uh and we're we're not gonna let you be bound by by chi or anything like that yeah. and you know instead of you being a rogue because you are also kind of a soldier um let's kind of make you like a knight errant or like a Yosha, which is like a, like a, like a, a vagabond sort of character. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just kind of went with that and we kind of used the D and D structure that was there, like how the system works, initiative, combat skills, mm-hmm. uh, the things that work. Yeah. And we were playing D and D without the classes after the first, first session, but we were still playing D and D. That is amazing. And that, that kind of, you know, hacking and looking at stuff, you know, of like making the system, like being story first and having the system come in to support what you want the story to be is I think a beautiful and B also like part of the joy of this game of the ability to be like, no, no, I understand it. Like this isn't a system in my video game console that I am completely unable to shift. This is a conversation at a table with me and my friends and we will change whatever needs changing. Um, uh, that's incredible. And it's really exciting to see, again, like you're talking about, other types of stories told by people who don't have their stories represented in the space to the degree they have. We had Kelly Lynn D'Angelo, uh, one of your co-workers on Candlekeep, which I want to talk about as well, yeah. uh, who's now doing ND, which is an all-native D&D game, uh, uh, in a very similar vein of, like, let's see a type of story we haven't seen before. Um, Talk to me a little bit also about Candlekeep and what working on that has been like. What was what was the process like? That's so goddamn cool. Or they emailed me and they're like, "Hey, we're doing this thing. It's gonna be a hardcover adventure. Do you want to join in?" And I was like, "Cool." Mm-hmm. Um, they were like, "You have basically complete freedom. The only thing that it has to tie to is Candlekeep and like a book." Mm-hmm. I was like, "Sweet, can I make it Asian?" They were like, "Yes," <laughs> and. So without spoiling anything, I basically made it uh, a Shaw Brothers Kung Fu movie in a D&D adventure. Hell yeah. Yeah. Uh, so like uh, extras from Shaolin, anything like that, I, I, I put in mine. Um, so if I, I uh, uh, completely, this will not relate to anything on the podcast. No, that's fine. But the the videos you sent me, I have watched more than once. The awesome like history of like, Kung Fu grindhouse films oh, on 42nd right? Street in New York. So incredibly cool. Uh, and that's like, again, it's a type of storytelling that deserves its place within the pantheon of like tabletop. Absolutely. Um, uh, that is amazing. Uh, you also mentioned archaeology, which I forget because we've talked about you like going to yeah. this camp at the museum. <laughs> 
talk to me about like archaeology and myth, because that's obviously something that you've said really informs your storytelling. What is it about archaeology and what it represents to you that forms that foundation for your storytelling sensibility? Yeah, like I'm I I realize that I am super privileged in that I was able to get paid to travel around the world and see really dope shit and eat really dope food. Like, like not many people can say that they, you know, went to a restored ancient village and got wasted there with a whole bunch <laughs> of other challenges. Like, you know, there's, there's like a lot of really cool things that I've been very privileged to be able to do. So I want to start off by saying that, like, uh, I'm very lucky to have done what I did. And so like, I, you know, I've practiced archeology span in like Southwest Asia. Like I worked on a dig in Jordan for, um, like a num- like for a number of years working in Dor- Jordan, I got to visit castles, ride horses. Like I got to, you know, see landscapes I had never seen before. I got to work in Greece. Like I literally got to work in a lab in Athens. And every day when I woke up, I could look out my window and see the Acropolis. Um, I got to travel all over China and seeing like really cool historical sites, learning about food, learning about like my parents' culture. Cause I was born in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, and like kind of experience being different in a place where I very much look like everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, archaeology had a huge impact on, you know, what I'm doing. I mean, in terms of like my game design and anything that I do, like I like to root everything in research. Because, you know, if we look at D&D, if we look at like the monsters, the weapons, anything like that, it's all inspired by something out there. Mm-hmm. All inspired by something out there. Um, and so for me, I, I basically got to be a professional academic world builder because that's what archaeology is, right? It's this, it's this like curiosity-driven and systematic exploration of the past and the unknown. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what D&D world building is. So anybody who is you know, crafting their own worlds or campaign settings, their own cities, writing about weapons and things like that, or, or people who are preparing actual plays and thinking about characters like how we connected, you know, when we're talking about how characters would act, what they would say, what they would wear, what they would eat. That is all something that can be gained by doing just doing research around the, the people all around you. And so, you know, as an archaeologist, I got to literally do that. I got to see ancient sites. I got to develop a really healthy respect for the world out there and how much I didn't know. Right? Yeah. Wow. How much I didn't know. And like, you know, so like going into Dungeons and the Asians, like I was like, okay, one of the things that we I really dislike about, you know, a lot of Asian stuff that you see out there in the TTRPG landscape is that it's just like, this is Japan. And it's just, but Japan's got this like thousands and thousands of years of history. This right. is Japan or like, this is China. And I was like, okay, Dungeons and the Asians is going to be based in the Han Dynasty and the politics of the Han Dynasty. So that means that the weapons that they have in this game are only going to be weapons of the Han Dynasty. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? The sort of the 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 politics and you know leading into the the Three Kingdoms era will will all be there. Um, but I also realize that you know there are also people who just want to make a fantasy. Um, for me, my approach to gaming is very much rooted in history because that's my background i love to just sit and be like okay oh there are a lot of different you know asian cultures in china at the time of the han dynasty how can i incorporate that into my game so that chinese people don't look like a monolith because we aren't um and so i kind of take my time as an archaeologist and as a museum educator and try to 
make everything that I do in the TTRPG space educational. Uh, well, I also like everything you're talking about, about like drawing inspiration from the real world. Uh, all that that does is it adds specificity and texture and nuance and truth. It adds truth to the stories you're telling. Like fantasy, yes, fantasy is, is by definition fantastical. However, what we're trying to do is communicate real things about lived life through the metaphors that fantasy provides. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, there are also, and I don't know that there are going to be people who will be watching this and be like, yeah, but then, well, what about historical accuracy? Mm -hmm. right? And that's another thing that that is a very dangerous place to be, right? Mm -hmm. um, there are always going to be people who, who will say like, well, you know, if I'm doing research, if I'm doing this, it is historically accurate to have racism here. It is historically accurate to have you know, gender inequality. It is historically accurate to have these forms of bigotry in my game because that's what it was like there. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, when we're, when I say research, when I say, you know, look into the past and learn about other people's cultures when you're making your games, you also have the ability to delete things and revise history. Mm -hmm. in a way that's more inclusive, in a way that includes other people at the table, right? And, you know, I, I had a conversation with, um, you know, a member of our Asians Represent community who was like, who felt like they had to do all the research into making their game world. And I, and I just said, well, why don't you just ask your players what they want yeah. or what they think, uh, who they know, what what this culture is like? And like share in this experience because ultimately what it becomes is this like really cool cultural exchange between you and everyone else at your table. Even if you all look the same, your life experiences are going to be vastly different. Um, so it's just like this really cool opportunity, like playing D and D world building. It's just such a cool opportunity to just learn to respect other people. I love that. I think a hundred percent. And like you're saying, like there's, uh, researching history to bring truth to what you are trying to represent doesn't mean that you are bound to revisit the yeah. horrors of the past. Um, and history itself also isn't accurate, right? Like mm -hmm. historical accuracy is is not a real thing, right? Because history, like stories aren't actually historical, right? Yes. And history isn't really accurate, right? You mm -hmm. know, like history is full of so many gaps. You know, they say history is written by the, vi the victors and all that. Yeah. But history is also written by people who have the ability to uphold blind spots. History is also written by people who have the ability to, you know, destroy or discard intervening stories. Right. It's also something that's been very on my mind as an American living in the current time period also is, you know, history, they said, you know, I had a history professor one time who said history is, is not the study of the past. It is the study of primary documents. It's the yes. story of the recordings of the past. And if you look at America right now and the fact that we have people that are living in completely different realities that don't even absorb the same facts <laughs> and are yep. and are what recording those different facts. And you go like any historian who comes back to our time period is going to have one hell of a time trying to figure out what happened. We can't figure yep. out what's happening right now. Um, it's a, uh, there's definitely, no, I, I take your meaning very well of like, there, you know, reality is in conflict at every moment in terms of people trying to record their version of what happened. Um, and you are not bound to, like you're, say, like you're saying, reproduce the racism, homophobia, sexism, et cetera, of uh, other time periods uh, mm -hmm. or even of this current period. Um, 
but speaking of history, again, not as something that is binding us, but as a source of inspiration to depict truth as best we can, I want to talk a little bit also about Ross Rifles, about a TTRPG yeah. uh, set in the trenches of World War One. As you mentioned, you are Canadian. By the way, to also mirror your experience, I have never felt more American in my entire life than when I went to Ireland. Uh, it was the most American. <laughs> I've, you know, because you're here, you're like, oh, this is, yeah, I got I got red hair, I have sunburn, haha, I have freckles, I look like a giant fucking leprechaun, haha. And then you go to Ireland, and you're like, oh, I'm American. These yep. people, <laughs> I am fully... <laughs> Fully, fully American. Um, uh, uh, so, uh, as a Canadian, talk to me a little bit about the the inspiration behind, you know, the Canadian trenches of World War One. Ross Rifles is itself a very like evocative name. Where did the inspiration for this come from, and how did the project start? Yeah. So I, this is Ross Rifles. Um, yeah, it's just a little powered by the apocalypse hack that took us like three years to make. Um, so a long time ago. I, for an old podcast that I used to run called Curiosity and Focus, um, I got to interview this engineer named Jack Jin. And Jack had been collaborating with um, Chinese Canadian Heritage Museums in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. um, and he had recently rediscovered the history of a man named Frederick Lee, who had fought for Canada in World War One. Now, if you see Frederick Lee in the context of World War One, that that could have totally been a white dude. Mm -hmm. Totally could have been a white British dude. Uh, but Jack had rediscovered this history of Frederick Lee as one of the first documented Canadian-born Chinese soldiers to fight and die in combat in World War I. Wow. And he fought in a, a number of battles, um, but he fought in uh, a really famous battle called the Battle of Hill 70, which is very significant for Canadians. And so I learned all about this history, and I was like, wait, I didn't even know Chinese people fought in World War One. Mm -hmm. Like, and you know, I was educated in Canada and you learn about World War One and I didn't know Chinese people fought in the war. I didn't know people looked like me were like subject to all of this. I mean, there were like a hundred laws in place in British Columbia at the start of World War One that basically took away our basic human rights. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that things like the Chinese Exclusion Act existed in America until I started learning about Chinese people in World War One. And I was like, oh, my God, this is incredible. So I started learning about, like, um, Wee Tan Louie, who was another Chinese person um, who fought in World War One, about the Japanese Canadians who fought in World War One. And I was like, okay, I'm going to take this to my students at the museum, and I'm going to teach them about this, because there was a World War One display at the museum. Um, and then I thought, well, okay, well, what if I want to take this a step further and play a TTRPG inspired by World War One? And so I started looking. And all of the ones I had found were basically just like weird war one. It's like mm -hmm. the horrors of the trenches are reduced to the supernatural and not like human wickedness. Mm -hmm. And so myself and at the time, my, 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 my teaching assistants, Patrick and Daniel, I was like, we should write a game. And so we wrote an early draft of Ross Rifles. We called it Ross Rifles because the Ross Rifle is an iconic Canadian rifle. It's mm -hmm. iconic because it was the shittiest gun of the war. Like, like, like there's a saying in Canadian history. It, it says it took five soldiers to operate one Ross rifle. <laughs> like, it was so bad that it, it was so it's a magnificent sharpshooting rifle, but it was so bad that Canadian soldiers were literally waiting for British soldiers to die so they could take their rifles, their Lee Enfields. It was so bad. <laughs> so we were like, you know, the Ross rifle is like, is going to be 
a symbol, an emblem of Canadian perseverance. <laughs> um, it's also going to be hilarious. Because um, not going to lie, it's hilarious. And so we, we put it together an early draft of Ross Rifles. And on Remembrance Day, mm-hmm. which happened to fall under on a Saturday um, in 2017, we played Ross Rifles with all of my students. There were like 30 students. And so we had six games of Ross Rifles running, and we were all participating in one battle. Wow. And, you know, we talked to the kid. We, we took them on a tour of the University of Toronto, which is near the Royal Ontario Museum. We talked about the World War I monuments. We saw old machine guns. And we talked about the different kinds of people who fought in the war. And then we got to actually tell those stories. And, you know, since after that day, we were like, okay, we have something. It might not have a D&D audience, but it's going to have a Canadian audience. And so we went and we, you know, we consulted with veterans who had uh, – and we talked about PTSD. We talked to psychologists. We actually went to the Canadian War Museum and we spent hours in their armory handling real Ross rifles and looking at all the variants and looking at how they like actually decorated their uniforms, the kind of art they made in the trenches. And we took this historical approach and we made a game about it. Um, but we basically said, be who you want to be, do what you want to do in the trenches, because ultimately... You know, the effect of a single soldier is going to be fairly insignificant on the war. So that means a story you could tell could be whatever you want it to be. It could be a story of hope. It could be a story of despair. But it's going to be your World War One story. Um, and yeah, so we we basically wrote a history, a, a history book with game rules. I have uh, the the amount of power contained in using a game to teach something that can come across as so dry. Like I'm always stunned again when, when worked with a lot of students and kids and other people like that uh, uh, have worked in various parts of like education and childcare bizarrely through a long career of also doing comedy and performance. But again, to make that stuff come to life and be like, this isn't, this isn't theoretical. Like this happened. This was life. For people is like yep. so incredibly significant. Um, I mean, a lot of people didn't think World War One was exciting until they saw 1917, which is a fantastic movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, God, I you know to make this stuff come to life for people is so so significant and important. That's amazing. Um, there's also a whole other conversation I feel like with you're talking about like the effect of a single soldier on the war. It's about like is your story a story of hope or despair? Because it's your you're making a contribution, but your contribution is only the size of you, and this thing is enormous. Yeah, that feels- it's, it's about the size of you and the impact that you have on people around you. Also, yeah. a lesson in like the impact you have on the people who you play games with. Yes. Yes. It's very, the, the, I don't know, there's something very beautiful that I think about that a lot recently. And also th- I, I, something I meditate a lot in, mm-hmm. on, in storytelling in general is the degree to which people want to consume stories about, uh, apocalypse and the individual sacrifices that avert them of like, <laughs> of, you know, yeah. like, of like, I stopped the nukes from firing. I stopped the nukes from firing. Um, And it's one of those things where I like, I think about this a lot in terms of tabletop and also more broadly in storytelling about like how, how to glorify um, those things that are uh, more common heroic acts. Because again, there's a reason people like stories of myth and legend of godlike contributions. Yeah. 
whether whether your god is you know an actual ancient you know thor or zeus or whatever pantheon thing or whether your divinities you know are those of the marvel cinematic universe we like the the big acts um so it's very cool to hear about you know like have consciousness around that idea of like oh what are those small moments that also make a huge difference well i think that's why people like the walking dead Mm-hmm. Right, the comics and the show, they, they are not going to, except for that really bad story where they added the CDC and everything. But like, <laughs> but like The Walking Dead is just about people trying to get by. Yeah. It's just yeah, about people yeah. trying to get by. And like, for the most part, nobody is, can be spared from the same fate, like dying, coming back to life. Right. Like mm-hmm. for me, it was just like Glenn, Glenn, yeah. great great first of all great example of like an asian character in media because he isn't defined by the fact that he's asian he is a a capable you know multifaceted individual but he was a main character and they killed him off and that was it and i think that was like a great storytelling moment because it's like yeah these people aren't aren't the brad pitts of world war z they're not going to find the cure they're not going to stop the apocalypse Mm -hmm. these people are just trying to survive and yeah. I think those are really cool stories that you could tell in your like D and D games, right? Like, what is it like for people who are just like, look, I'm just on a farm, <laughs> and you know, wolves are attacking. Like, those little stories are can still be really powerful because, it's like, well, what are the what is what is what is the effect on on your actions as a hero, right? If yes. you come in and you start saving people, well, what happens? Or or if you start stealing things, pilfering lost relics. Like, what effect does that have on the people who are really close to them? Yes, 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 yes. And following those stories that are about, like, again, you have this immediate impact on the world around you uh, is beautiful. It's, you know, I feel like a ton of times in Dimension 20, we've tried to, like, uh, have our cake and eat it, too, of, like, yes, we're going to fight a giant dragon, but also friendship, very important. Like, this moment of connection, very, very significant as well. uh, well, like we uh, had a, we had an episode of Dungeons and Asians where it was just mm-hmm. it was like our our, our hot spring episode. They literally yes. found a village that had a hot spring, and we just talked about food, and that was it. Oh man, I love those episodes. That's like my the 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 one thing of the in, in like home game stuff because again normally there's like a very a set number of episodes and we're we're you know getting to certain like battle sets on time the the home game thing of just like hey we found these delightful hot springs they're right near these like beautiful fruit trees or nut trees or whatever there's just a bunch of food around we're just gonna relax how's everybody feeling <laughs> it's well, like... like for 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 me like i got exposed to this that idea when so i so at fan expo canada i used to sit annually on this panel with ed greenwood it'd be like all these legends and then me i'm like why the fuck am i here um and ed talked about his home game Mm -hmm. and he was just like yeah it's just me and my friends and we get together and we sit down at the table and we're like okay what do we want to do today yeah and and it's like they all have this intimate knowledge of the world obviously he is the creator of the world um literally um Mm -hmm. but like they were just sitting down talking about like okay what is what do we want to do today Remember there was that bridge that we wrecked? Maybe we should go try to fix that bridge. And that will be their session. And I thought that was just so cool. Like, that is still goals. Like, to have yeah. a long-term game where you just sit down and you're just... And it's truly collaborative. I love that. That 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 is, like, the grail, right? That's, like, what people are chasing to, like... Exactly. Find, yeah. 
Uh, I love that so much. Um, uh, we're gonna we're gonna jump into some fan questions here. We've yeah, let's been, do it. Let's do it. Um, uh, this first one uh, comes to us from Sean Mars. Thanks, Sean. Um, Sean asks, "What are the fundamental questions you ask your players when they are building a character for a new campaign? What information about the setting or campaign is important to give them?" Thanks for the question, Sean. That's a good question. And we're, I'm assuming we're both answering these. Yes, absolutely. We are both answering these questions. We are, um, uh, I think within that question is something interesting of like the idea of like, yeah, because obviously now here's the thing. Some people do make characters in a vacuum, which I don't recommend to just like show up and be like, I'm sure this Here's, here's my will... three pages of backstory. Let's yeah. go. <laughs> this will make sense no matter what's going on in your world, yeah. right? Um, well, 100%. And I think, yeah, like when you're starting a campaign, I would love to know like like what you told your your mom and dad as well before they came up with their character idea. But like, yeah, what information do you give to players when you're start when you're prepping for that session 0 or you're prepping for session 1? Um what information do you give to them? Uh, uh and does it change depending on like what type of campaign you're going to run or what type of game you're going to run? Yeah, like I'm I'm literally preparing for like a, like a home D and D game with some friends who had never played before, um, and I'm like, you know what? We're gonna sit down and we're gonna talk about tone. So for for me, that session zero is just so important, and it's like, okay, let's talk, first of all, let's talk about what we don't want in our game, right? Mm -hmm. Lines and veils, super important. Whether or not you're doing it for a show or you're doing it at home, you want everyone to feel comfortable, right? It's like, mm -hmm. okay, what do we want in the game? What's the tone of the game? Is it going to be like? Like Bloodborne, but D and D, mm -hmm. I'm on board for that. Or, <laughs> or, or are we gonna do something like Monster Hunter in D and D? And these are to totally different, like media properties, first of all. But like the types of characters that will come out of them are like completely different. So let's first talk about like tone. What do we want, right? Yeah. What is on our, our like palette, right? Um, mm -hmm. It's like what do we want? What don't we want? And then it's just like, okay, well, how are our characters connected? And like, I really love how some other TTRPGs, there's this one called Coriolis. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like a science fiction RPG. Um, and literally when you're creating characters, before you even start doing characters, you have to come up with a group concept. Ooh. So like, what is your group? Are you a group of space mercenaries? Or are you a group of explorers? Are you a group of space cops? Are you a group of corporate agents who are trying to acquire mm -hmm. goods, planets, materials? Yes. Right? What is your group concept? So who are we? Right? God, I and love then, that. And then, you, and then you have to ask, like, what is your role within this group? Right? Mm -hmm. So if our group concept is like, okay, you know, we are a bunch of, like, the classic one. We're mercenaries. Cool. If you're mercenaries, this doesn't also this also doesn't have to be boring. If you're mercenaries, okay, well, are you in the same mercenary company? Are you from competing mercenary companies? Have you worked together before? Yes. Why did you all take this job based on the answers to the first three questions? It's so smart. That is so goddamn smart. Again, like you're talking, I love the words you're using too, which very much resonate with me of like, use the word palette, like a painter's palette that, that uh, ultimately this is not purely cerebral or like textual. 
we're trying to hit a vibe. We're trying to clock the genre, the mood. Like, I don't know how to perfectly articulate in words why, like, a Guy Ritchie gangster film feels different than My Little Pony. Like, you just, you know, it's the bright colors, it's the sound effects, it's the vibe, it's the pace at which the story moves. It's all these intangibles Mm -hmm. that actually make the heart and soul of the type of story you're trying to tell, right? Um, And following that idea of, like, the the important questions not being like what are your mechanics what are your character powers what's that stuff your... comes later it comes later it comes later it's like what's the vibe what's the genre how do you all relate to each other um, the... and that's the cool part about D anD D too right because you know how we talked about how D anD D is very much setting agnostic mm-hmm. that that setting is also the tone so if you're doing like grim dark like Bloodborne because I'm going to go back to that because I, I love that game. Mm-hmm. Um, if you grimdark like Bloodborne and somebody is playing, say, like a druid, what does a druid look like in this world? What do your powers look like in this world? Mm-hmm. Uh, if if you can, if you get an animal companion, what does what is your animal companion? Like that palette is going to inform any decision that you make. Or it's like, hey, our tone is going to be like low fantasy. We don't want a lot of magic or magic is very taboo. What are your characters going to be? That might be like, okay, if we all agree to that, maybe let's not be like wizards. Maybe let's not be, or maybe instead of a wizard, I'll be a sorcerer because I was born with these magical abilities that I'm trying to learn about and Mm -hmm. using them puts me in danger in a narrative context. Or like in a world where magic is outlawed, I I desperately needed magic to save someone that I loved or to do something truly evil. Mm -hmm. I'm a warlock. And I made a deal and I got magic, even though magic is reserved maybe only for the upper class. And I'm a lower class citizen in this world. Like Mm -hmm. the decisions you make from like a game mechanics perspective will be based on tone. It will be based on the palette that you set. I couldn't agree more. And I think that there is that beautiful synergy. Because I think, look, the guaranteed way for me to not have fun in a game as a player is disconnect. Disconnect from the world. If you look at if you look at these as being three distinct things, which really they're not, but just for ease of category, we'll just talk about them this way: plot, world, uh, fellow PCs, right? Your other player characters, the setting elements, and the plot. And basically, if you have a wild disconnect from any one of those three things, your enjoyment of the game, I think, collapses 50% right away. Like, even if you yeah. only have two of the three, I think it all, the the perfect game needs you to have this feeling of, I am intimately and intricately tied to my fellow adventurers. I am born of and with the facts and stories of the setting and the plot directly relates to my past present and future absolutely like you 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 need to have that that sort of built-in backstory like what connects you to everyone right Mm -hmm. you can't have like a game and the gm is like the gm makes the executive decision that they are go. it's going to be a political intrigue game and then it's just like well i'm a barbarian like you could make it work. You could 100% make it work. But what if you're like, I want to be a barbarian because I just want to hack and slash some motherfuckers, right? Yeah. Like it, no. there's going to be that disconnect. You're going to have that player who's just like, I'm not feeling this. Yes. And that, and I think that kind of leads into like who should have the power, right? It should be with everyone, right? The GM cannot make every single decision because the players also need to participate in this story. They aren't just reacting. 
They are they are actively making decisions. Yes, a million percent. You said that I agree with your point 100%. And also the moment you said a barbarian in a political intrigue setting, I immediately was like, <laughs> ooh, how would you make that work? That could like be you very- could, you could. But you'd have to be the kind of person who would be willing to say, to pivot and be like, I got this. I'm, yes. I'm like, I'm a, I'm a diplomat from this barbarian nation. Yeah. And people might think I'm a barbarian, but I'm really super sophisticated. I immediately went to Vercingetorix, the historical Celtic general <laughs> who like got captured by the Romans and is like, um, I'm super good at fighting. Would you guys just let me fight for you? And they're yeah. like, hey, this guy's all right. Um, uh, uh, that's yeah. That would be a very to, to play to play the barbarian trying to make it in the imperial court. Uh, that could be very fun. But like you're saying, again, it's about it's about things being interwoven. Because again, the the guarantee for for me to have a bad time playing in a game is I don't know why we're here. I don't know why this matters. I don't know why I'm connected to these other people. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I love it. Um, uh, let's see here. Um, uh, this one's from, uh, uh, let's see here. Let's go. Um, uh, this one's from Patrick. Thanks, Patrick. I love DMing, but when I get busy with work, I sometimes feel overwhelmed and unable to plan for a good session. Do you have any tips for how you plan when you feel this way? Oh yeah. How do you do that dang prep when you're feeling overwhelmed? I don't Uh, prep. (laughs) No, no, that's, that's, that's the, that's the asshole answer. Um, no, I think I'd be with you though. Yeah. There are, there are going to be people who will prep and there are going to be people who won't prep. Um, for me, like when I'm playing D&D or when I'm playing any TTRPG, I have like narrative beats that I want to hit that I usually like come up with like well before we actually start the games. Um, and it's like how we get to those narrative beats, like it is really up to the players. Mm-hmm. Um, if you find that like A, like you're getting stressed out and you don't have a lot of time, like, first of all, communicate that with your players. It's mm-hmm. super important for you as, like, like a GM to basically tell your players, like, hey, look, I'm getting really stressed, right? And I don't want this to affect our game, and I don't want this to affect anyone's enjoyment, myself included. What can we do? Mm-hmm. Um, one thing you could always do is obviously trade off. But if this is a last-minute thing, what if you say, hey, let's take the time and do some world-building together instead of playing? Uh, we did this in Dungeons and Asians one time, uh, a player very last minute couldn't attend. And if you only have three players and one GM, you kind of don't want to continue without them. And yeah. so what we were like, we were like, okay, let's, let's play, let's play another game. Let's do some world building. Let's talk about what could be, um, I, a couple tools like that. Like I really enjoy microscope. Microscope is just a fantastic game that we ultimately just ended up playing together as Dungeons and Asians. Um, but Microscope is a cool tool to basically step back and be like, hey, we've been talking about the world kind of in the periphery. Let's kind of put the world into focus and talk about its history. And if we all know the history of the world, if we all make it together, that will just make our role playing better. And that will help drive our stories, give us threads that we want to touch on later. Um, so if you're having problems, you know, with like prep um, or stress, like my answer is personally would be, you know, maybe give more power to your players, plan narrative beats that you ultimately want to hit and develop an understand and establish an understanding at the table that you know everyone is responsible for the story because it's ultimately everybody's story. Um, yeah. I fully 
agree. And I think that there is, like you're saying, listen, not to not to bring it to this place, but like, uh, very except, except for a very rare and lucky few, if you're DMing for your group of friends, that's free labor. Like most people are it happy is. to do it. You're not getting paid, baby. That's a, that's this is your fun time. So like, you if anyone's giving you a hard time for lack of preparation. There, there needs to be some acknowledgement about the big favor it is to be doing that prep work anyway. Um, uh, not that, again, not that it, the DM is still just one player at the table. However, some accommodation should be made for the fact that this person is putting in a lot of extra work, right? Um, that being said, I think that uh, honesty is always very good. It's very good to be honest with your players about like, hey guys, I'm slammed. Can we reschedule? Or if we can't, can we play another game? Could it, some, it might be helpful for me if someone else could DM for a little while or we do a different one shot. Again, also, I think there's something interesting to point out, which is that like um, certain sessions require less prep work than others. Like if you find that you have an easier time doing combat or doing RP that one requires less prep time for you, you can insert detour chapters in your story. You know what I mean? Just being like, yeah. you know what? I'm going to let my players get a, you know what? Your, your patron, whatever, your warlock patron, uh, he's going to give you a castle. And actually he says that he can make it with magic. So you guys have to design it and tell him exactly what you want it to be. And now your players are going to spend a session <laughs> drawing what their ideal castle would look like. Well, you know, what would be an even cooler one. If you're like, if you're like, if you don't know what to do, mm -hmm. uh, one thing that I, we started doing and we ended up not doing anymore because of, of COVID and quarantine was that every, every session, um, everybody writes down a little piece of paper Banes and boons. Ooh. Uh, it could be like like two banes and, and a boon or, or whatever combination that you want. You're just going to mm -hmm. put them in a bowl. Um, and when you have downtime, like travel, or you just are slammed, mm -hmm. you draw from that bowl, and that's what you're going to do. Wow. And it could be like, oh, a mysterious shopkeeper approaches. Or it could be like, we are attacked by bandits. Or somebody from one of the players' pasts comes to haunt them. And then, and if with all the players writing it, it very much becomes part of their story. Because if like if you're that barbarian in that intrigue game, it's like the true. I could even write the true purpose of my uh, my involvement is revealed. Whoa! Very and then boom! It's there. Um, uh, that's very very cool. Um, damn. Uh, uh, Take yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, taking that story prompt and going there. Again, I think the main thing, again, with, with stuff is prep is at its highest when you are doing a big thing to move your story forward. Bottle episodes are okay. You know, like, when I say bottle episode, I mean, like, hey, this is one where instead of, you know, advancing the plot, we all get trapped in an elevator. Oh, what are oh, we going to no. do? Oh, no. <laughs> and it's like, this didn't really advance the overarching plot, but it was still very fun. Those can be, I think, appreciated. I think another thing is like a big cause of stress for many GMs is that they're like, well, I want, I need this thing to work, but my players aren't grabbing the hooks, right? And I think you also need to set the expectation at your table that the players aren't here to just do what they want. They also need to like, okay, the GM is obviously dangling this hook in front of us. We should go talk to this person. Yes. Like there has to be this back and forth between them. And it's just not the players making the decisions or the GMs making the decisions. It has to be fairly egalitarian. 
Like yes. the GM is just the rules arbiter and you are kind of settling disputes and creating the world around them. But everyone needs to be making decisions and oh, that yeah. will take a lot of the stress off of you. If you don't like, okay, I have this really combative player who's just not doing what I want. That's, I, that's so stressful and I totally get it. Mm-hmm. There is nothing that is a higher high as a DM when your PCs get to the level of confidence where they're like, you know what? That Duke screwed us over three adventures ago. We should plot the downfall of him because we know that he's working with the cultists and the dragon, you know, like let, and you're like, oh, you guys are designing the next adventure. And they're like, yeah, we're going to go to his castle. We're going to get these people here. We're going to do this. And you're like, done. Great. Great. Done. I'll just sit back and you're just going to roll dice. (laughs) Mwah, a perfect, beautiful feeling. But that, um, that's that's the ideal table, right? It's like people who are engaged, and like this is work the whole group has to do. It's players who are engaged. It's a story that is meeting the expectations of everyone at the table. Mm-hmm. And it's players who are aware of the world that they are in. Yes. And I mean, um, that's why, the, that's and like to give them credit, that's why the Forgotten Realms is, is a great tool because there's so much that you yeah. can use having that world that feels that textured and alive and rich, I mean, that's what you want again. And I think this is the, I think this is one of the issues too of like why I recommend character creation being a process that's on hand in hand with the DM is the, the more your PCs feel like I'm a stranger in a strange land. I have no connections to the people, places, or history or events of the place that I'm in. I'm just sort of a murder hobo who's wander in, wandered in. Um, when when they don't feel part of the tapestry of the setting they're in, I actually find that m- like murder and looting becomes the only thing they feel qualified to do, as yep. opposed to someone who's like, no, I am born of the tapestry of this setting. My like the people on that merchant skills and the people in that wizard's academy and the people that are in that, you know, group of rogues down by the harbor. These are like my cousins and people I've met and mm-hmm. had adventures with. Like if I suddenly go like, actually this land, like the, like, you know, I, I also love when the meaning of the campaign erupts almost from the PCs and their take on things. Like you as a DM have just been stringing, you know, the early low level adventures together. And suddenly one of them goes like, damn, every aristocrat we meet is like a horrible person. We should overthrow the aristocracy. And you as a DM suddenly go like, oh, oh shit, I guess. there we go. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There's your adventure. There's right? your adventure. I also think like debriefs are super important. Like we do this um, in Dungeons and Asians, we basically say like at the end of the adventure, we do uh, stars and wishes. We do what do we really like? Like it could be like I really loved it when we had that role play, or I really liked Daniel the way you portrayed this character. I thought I thought they were going to be. We had this character, and they thought the character was going to be this like sort of like really hollow one trick character. They're like that character came out way more nuanced than I expected. Um, can we keep her around? Yes. Right. Yes. Or like. And then wishes are like, what do you want in the next session? So like if your player's like, we just want, we, we want combat. Well, you know, next session, I'm just going to prepare combat. Or like, we want more NPC interaction. Great, I don't have to worry about a combat encounter. Like, it's so important. Incredible. I actually think, we've, we've done a lot of adventuring academies. I don't know that we've ever recommended debriefs before. Huge, <laughs> huge, huge, do that. Absolutely. First of all, it's like the most fun in the world. And for whatever world where people can be hanging out in person again, 
I so look forward to the weary post-session collapse with snacks and soft drinks going, man, when you did that, that shit was so cool. Like, that's half the fun is, like, yeah. gassing each other up after the um, after the session concludes. And yeah, um, we just happened to put structure in it because it makes my life easier because I know what they want next time. And, like, if we do our show monthly, I can literally go, like, I'm going to open up my notebook right now and I can go to session 10. What did we want? And I can see, like, Jade wants to get to know the other party members because Jade's character is new. Agatha wants conversation between uh, her character and Jade's character. Amar wants to see the process of Jade's character integrating into the party. And Steve wants to have less NP NPC guidance or interference. And so I now know, like, next, next, next session, no combat, and it's just going to be them interacting. Hell yeah. Right? Um, that is such a great system. That's in, we do a lot on Adventure Academy. Do a lot of big theory talk, which is beautiful, and I love it, gang. What Daniel just told you about debriefs and that system—you could do that tonight in your session, and it would immediately make a drastic improvement. Like, yeah, debrief. I I have like Facebook messages with in my long-running home game of like talk getting deep into the like the psychology i'll be like where's your character's head at we just had this huge battle how are they feeling about the quest what are they going like uh uh you glean so much material just from listening to your pieces and, and keep is... keep your notes open to them so like i have mm -hmm. uh we have like a shared notebook like a digital notebook and i basically put recaps of every session in there all the notes that i take are available to them when it's done i put mm -hmm. sections on the world the history and every NPC that they've met. I've literally taken, so I'm a really big fan of The Office, uh, yes. the sitcom. Mm -hmm. And I was listening to Jenna Fisher and Angela Kinsey's podcast, Office Ladies, and they were talking about this thing called the show Bible. And I had never heard of the concept before because I've never, were obviously never worked in television or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And they were like, yeah, it's literally a binder or a document that has every single detail, every single plot thread, every single character that they've ever encountered. And so I started doing that. Literally any NPC that they've encountered, I wrote down their name, details, the episode they appeared in, and notes. And so it's mm -hmm. available to all of the players. Wow. So, that... then, so, so like all the things that you said, like, oh, remember that aristocrat that was just a giant asshole? What was his mm -hmm. name? Oh, look, look, that's their name. Uh, I... I'm like, the nerd in me is like salivating for a good glossary, for a good like show Bible. That's like, it. It's like, oh, all the information indexed and categorized. It's hugely important. It's, again, it doesn't take that many sessions of a campaign for, the, for there to feel like a weight of information. Like, uh, I think that is so, so damn smart. Um, uh, I love it. Uh, this next one comes to us from Julie. Thanks, Julie. Um, I have a group that is not very combat heavy and instead loves RP and problem solving. We are using milestone leveling, but I'm having a hard time finding moments for them to level up if we are doing less combat. Do you have recommendations for types of level up moments that aren't combat based? Thanks. Julie, an incredible question. This is the first time we've had a question like this on the on the podcast. Um, yeah, like Daniel, and again, you have a wealth of campaigns to speak on of having played in and ran and everything like that. Uh, what are your thoughts, I think just more broadly about XP versus milestone leveling and how do you handle it when, you know, shit is a little bit lighter on the combat? I like, I like milestone. I don't like XP because I also don't like math. <laughs> uh, I don't like math. Um, but I like milestones only because I want 
the characters to advance in a way that makes sense for the narrative in the narrative. Mm-hmm. So for instance, if we just got through like a combat encounter, totally, you maybe a new ability awakens in you, that's awesome. Or maybe you just met this person, right? And you you tried something new. Mm-hmm. Like you tried a new way of interacting with them. You you tried to be maybe less aggressive and you tried to be more empathetic. Like that's mm-hmm. a learning opportunity. Like experience is not just gained from killing shit, right? Yes. Right. Like in, in, there are a lot of games where like at the end of the session, you debrief. Um, you could say things like in Coriolis, there's like six questions that you have to answer at the end of every session. And if you say yes, you get one XP point. And for every five, you get to level up. Right. So mm-hmm. it's like, did you participate? Uh, did you um, put yourself at risk for one of your friends? Uh, mm-hmm. Did your personal problem get in the way? Yes. Things like that. They're like, while combat can totally be a part of that, yeah, I, like personal problem got in the way because we got attacked by like debt collectors, or like, <laughs> or my personal problem got in the way because like, look, I'm a kleptomaniac and I just got I got to steal, right? <laughs> like these are things that don't involve combat and could totally be incorporated into role play. So you could say like, hey, let's let's think about a milestone system. If and we'll base it on questions, maybe if we feel like we've answered enough of these, totally. Or leveling up could just be a conversation. Do you feel if you're not doing combat and you're just doing RP, does leveling up even matter? Does leveling up yeah. even matter if your abilities are going to be combat based, right? Yeah, so I maybe mean, you don't need to level up at all, or maybe that, you make your characters go to a level where you think you have enough abilities to do what you want. I just never level up. I I love that. First of all, there are a lot of amazing hacks out there. I actually don't know if I've seen it for 5th edition, but I also don't know that it would be that hard to do, which is just uh, Epic Level 6, which is a great old hack from back mm-hmm. in the day. Um, uh, uh, so at, what Epic Level 6 was, was it's basically um, once you get to 6th level as a PC, every time you would level up, you just get another feat. And what that does is it caps your hit points, it caps your uh, proficiency bonus, it caps a bunch of this other stuff. And you keep, as you keep fighting, you know, you can get like, oh, I have like eight different feats, I have 10 feats or whatever. You, you are more lethal, but yeah. you're still squishy. You're still squishy. Like, and it makes things like when a, you know, adult dress, like, let's be honest, a group of six 20th level characters, a great worm red dragon is going down. If it's the first thing they're fighting that day, it's it's gonna go down, no question, mm. right? It's a foregone conclusion. Um, uh, however, um, with that being said, it, if you're epic level six, let's say that you've gained enough XP to do whatever, like you're still at the level of hit points where if you take max falling damage, you might die. A, any 20 level character, even a wizard, could just face plant out of an airplane, get up and dust themselves off, right? Um, yep. uh, <laughs> do you remember the epic level handbook? Did you ever read oh that book? Oh my God. And it was just so ridiculous. It was like levels 20 to 40. And it was just like, I thought what was really cool about it was like, oh yeah, it took Eber, it took the dwarf, um, I forget his name, shit. Tor- Tordek? Tordek. It took yes. Tordek for the player's handbook, and now he's all epic. He's got brilliant energy battle axes, and I'm just like, oh, that's kind of neat. But also like, I have ten attacks. It's just yeah. everything is just scaling with you. I you don't need everything, that. 
yeah, you don't need everything scaling. And you're watching like 10th level spells and it's like, this spell creates a winter blizzard that covers the planet you're on and it lasts for a hundred days and everyone takes five cold damage around. And you're like, this, oh, why, why? Right. How are we still playing <laughs> these characters? But to your point, um, in terms of the question of like leveling up, there are interesting things you can do with leveling. Like Epic level six is a great way to keep characters at a position where they still are being rewarded for adventuring, but like a manticore or a unicorn or a gorgon showing up is still a big deal. It's not ever going to be a small deal for something like that to show up, right? Um, uh, which is cool. Um, what I would say for, for your leveling, right? Number one, XP always creates a lot of weird problems. We've talked about this on the podcast before. Well, but people like, feel they... driven to get XP. Yes, and it creates weird things where it's like, if XP is real in the world, um, what ends up happening is any wizarding academy should be like, the key to wizardry is murder. Here is a group of monsters. It's like, you know, the only way you're gonna, like what, you've been reading books? What are you, a chump? Go kill stuff. Um, yeah, it's like it's like it's like Minecraft where you have like you're farming materials and you can farm XP in Minecraft because you just got to get better. No, like yeah, absolutely, a hundred percent. So like to Julie's point, um, one thing I did in my or am still doing in this long running three point five home game is we have a thing called being legendary, which is that um, people don't really know that this is happening, but everyone in the world, all sentient beings in the world cap off at eighth level, unless you do something legendary, at which point you break through. And that's a totally arbitrary thing. But we had characters who were like, no, like, like the way the world works is that there's like the power of stories is something even within the world and like group belief and consensus reality are kind of things. So it's like, yeah, you are actually limited in the amount of power you can get unless you become a heroic figure. You can get to eight, but if you want to break past eight, you're going to have to do something that p makes you a legendary hero. Yeah, um, no, totally. Um, which is obviously not what Julia's talking about, but for her, I think, yeah, there's a couple things. Training is one thing of like, it's so funny how little training matters in most DC where's my campaigns. montage i want my montage <laughs> right where's your rocky in the snow jogging along you know yeah i'm really punching meat in a freezer <laughs> like that's that's what i want except i'm a exactly. bard <laughs> right exactly training is a great thing you can do i think that if you're if you're looking for people that are mostly rp there is an element of like how do you justify them getting better at their combat abilities how do you justify them getting better have them train have them study change mentors mentors there, there's a whole quest line right like i heard that there are these techniques there is look i heard that there's a technique for for taming animals i want my mm -hmm. animal companion right yeah let's go find this master who will teach me how to do this or like i i want to learn like you, you get to like you get to pick your like what if you're a monk and you get to pick your school i gotta go find my damn school yeah this stuff can be baked into the actual structure of the world. I think actually within what you're saying too, Daniel, is like the best piece of advice of like, look at the level that your person's trying to take. Like, in other words, before you let them level up, ask them like, 
are you staying in the same class or are you multi-classing? If you're staying in the same class, what's your next level ability? Like if I'm looking at someone's next level and I'm like, oh shit, this sorcerer is about to go level five and get fireball, cool. Don't think about justifying level five, which is abstract. Think about justifying fireball. That ability, yeah. That ability, you know? Um, I think that can be truly, truly helpful. Um, well, good grief, an hour and a half flew oh, by. already, okay. <laughs> I, absolutely, the time simply vanished. Um, uh, Daniel, what a goddamn pleasure and honor having you on the show today. Uh, uh, where, where can our fans go and find your work? You just find me on Twitter at Daniel H. Kwan. That's pretty much where I put everything. You could find my Ross Rifle stuff. Asians represent all through my Twitter. Uh, I have I have like an itch.io page. It's danielhquan.itch.io. I publish like weird, funky zines. I publish three things there. Two short Chinese monster manuals that are actually inspired by Chinese folklore. Uh, and then one, and it's just a it's like a 10-page zine on legendary Chinese swords and the history of Chinese blades. God damn, that is so cool. Please go check out Daniel Kwan. Uh, go support Ross Rifles. Go support Dungeons and Asians. Uh, Daniel, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, a pleasure and a joy. Uh, and we will see y'all next time. Later. Ooh, thank you for having me. This was this was super cool. <laughs>